have a confession to make. The first time I read Pride and Prejudice, I hated it. I was in high school when I read it the first time, and I honestly thought it was the most boring novel I'd ever read, and I read a lot of novels. It was just a bunch of girly girls and rich folks bumbling about, fretting about money and marriage and dinner parties and other rich folk things. I thought it was just a sappy love story. I thought it had nothing to teach me about my life because my life was so, so different from Elizabeth Bennet's life. Boy, was I wrong. I'm Karen Swallow Pryor. I love Jane Austen and I love Jesus, but not always in that order. Welcome to the first episode of Jane and Jesus. It took me a few decades of reading and rereading Jane Austen, not to mention a PhD in literature, to realize what my teenage brain couldn't understand. Pride and Prejudice is a brilliant bit of satire, an attempt to gently correct foolish people and a generative view of virtue given to a culture that seemed very far from the truly transcendent or good. Even more than this, Pride and Prejudice is actually a deeply religious novel. It was written in a time when religion was giving way to modern subjectivity and the radically autonomous self. Austin was writing in a time when religion was just starting to be boxed off from the rest of life, separated off from everything else, an approach to religion that 200 years later is pretty normal for a lot of people. It wasn't normal for Jane Austen. Religion, in particular, the Anglican Christianity she was born into, was so woven into her life and into the lives of her characters that Christianity is the assumption that underlies the entire novel. Yet Austin knew that underlying assumptions are what get us into real trouble. And that's what Pride and Prejudice is really about, the kinds of things that happen to you and me when we assume. Don't believe me? Just look at the novel's first line. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. It's a fair prospect. Pretty enough, I grant you. Oh, it's nothing to Pembley, I know. But I must settle somewhere. Now, if you're like high school me, you can be forgiven for focusing only on the parts about the fortune and the wife. But if you're like me now, I hope you pay attention to that part about the truth. Is it the truth that a single rich man desires nothing more than getting married? Is this truth universally acknowledged? Or for that matter, is any truth acknowledged universally? It doesn't take a doctorate in divinity to know that the answer, of course, is no. If anything were universally acknowledged and agreed upon, we wouldn't have wars, we wouldn't need elections, and we'd have little use for books and poems and really any conversation at all. We'd just nod our heads at our shared truth and say, yep, affirming what we already know. And yet, Jane Austen begins Pride and Prejudice in this fashion because she wants to show us what happens to a group of people to a society, really, when it becomes so deeply tethered to ideas it holds to be universal and self-evident. The lesson she teaches us right there with the very first sentence is one we all need to hear these days in America, a country thick with too many people too sure that their truth is universally acknowledged. But it's an idea that should resonate especially with folks like me. I'm a Christian, you see, and I'm on the pretty fundamentalist conservative side of things. Don't get me wrong. 
I fiercely believe in the truth with a capital T, and I believe that my fellow Christians and I have a pretty good handle on the truth, more so maybe than others who don't share our convictions. Which is precisely why I personally need this novel, a wonderful corrective to this tendency we have, being human, to assume that what we see is the whole big picture and to not recognize that our perspective is, by definition, much narrower than we'd like to admit. Or put simply, what Pride and Prejudice teaches us is this. There absolutely is an absolute truth, but we fallible, fallen human beings sadly never get to see all of it, to grasp all of it, no matter what we think. The Bible, of course, shared this insight early on, Here's one of my favorite verses, one I repeat to myself every time something on cable news or Twitter gets me worked up. It's from Proverbs 18:17. The first to state his case seems right until another comes and cross-examines him. Jane Austen herself could have written these words. In fact, she originally titled this novel First Impressions, a reminder that those are so often tragically wrong. You have been dancing with the only handsome girl in the room. Darcy, she is the most beautiful creature I ever beheld. Look, look, there's one of her sisters. She's very pretty too, and I dare say very agreeable. She is tolerable, I suppose. If you looked at a certain person from Nazareth, for example, whom the scriptures tell us wasn't comely or attractive, you would be excused for not having a good first impression of Jesus himself. Jesus was a poor carpenter who hung around with the meek and the outcast. He wasn't someone any of the Bennett sisters, the heroines of Pride and Prejudice, would ever consider marrying, and he was as far as you can be from their circles of rich and powerful people. But the story of the Bennett sisters is the story of first impressions melting into air, of truth shining through, and of virtue, real virtue, emerging triumphant. It's a story relevant to all of us, but one that would especially resonate with anyone interested in the teachings of Christ. Not, mind you, because Jane Austen had secretly intended her masterpiece to be some dogmatic religious tract. She was a devout Christian, true, with an Anglican minister father and letters that demonstrate just how strong her faith was and just how immersed she was in the liturgy and language of the Church of England. Rather, Jane Austen, and particularly Pride and Prejudice, is what we need to read right now because hers was the difficult but essential task of remoralizing society, a task we ourselves now face. How do we move hearts and minds? How do we talk about virtues without sounding like fuddy-duddies or worse, crazy zealots? How do we build vast coalitions of people who care about the same fundamental questions we do, even if they don't necessarily share our religious affiliations? What to do when our culture has grown so polarized? What to do when approximately half of us spend our days and our energy demonizing the other half and vice versa? What to do when popular entertainment seems so crass and politics so broken? and the fabric of civic life torn beyond repair? The answer is simple. Start putting it back together. First, we have to acknowledge, on the one hand, that material considerations and concerns are crucial, 
and that ignoring them in favor of some feel-good utopian ideology isn't going to do much good for real people who have real concerns. But then acknowledge also that a life without compassion and empathy, without goodness or grace, isn't one worth living. In other words, the task ahead of us is about balancing reason and passion, which just happens to be the exact thing Jane Austen spent her career writing about better than anyone before her or since. Will you not join us, Mr. Darcy? That would defeat the object. What do you mean, sir? What on earth can he mean? I think we would do better not to inquire. Nay, we insist on knowing your meaning, sir. Why, that your figures appear to best advantage when walking and that I might best admire them from my present position. <laughs> Shocking! Abominable reply! How shall we punish him, Miss Eliza? <laughs> Nothing so easy. Tease him. Laugh at him. Laugh at Mr. Darcy. Impossible. He is a man without fault. Is he indeed? A man without fault. That is not possible for anyone. But it has been my study to avoid those weaknesses which expose a strong understanding to ridicule. So let's jump right into Jane and her world. It's a world very much like our own. In each coming episode, we'll explore one character from Pride and Prejudice and see what he or she has to tell us that is both resonant with Christ's teachings and urgently important to us today, no matter what we think or believe. We'll meet the bookish Mary Bennett, who is so fond of reading and searching for moral lessons in dusty texts that she too often fails to know herself and realize, well, just how much she doesn't know. We'll meet Jane Bennett, so lovely and amiable and nice that she, like too many of us, forgets to stand up for herself and fight for what she believes. We'll meet Lydia Bennett, a hopeless romantic whose great passion stirs our souls until we realize that she rushes right into a very bad relationship. We'll meet Kitty Bennett, the sister who, like so many of us who go on social media, is flustered when other people define her and tag her as something she really isn't. We'll meet Mr. Darcy, so alluring and attractive and yet so bad at curbing his vanity, his pride, and his greed. And of course, we'll meet the book's heroine, Elizabeth Bennet, the embodiment of all these challenges and virtues and vices and blind spots, a good and mindful person trying to find prosperity and passion in a world that too often limits our supply of both. How to start such a journey? by welcoming one of my favorite contemporary authors, Dara Horn. Dara herself has grappled with many of these themes, though as a Jew, she comes from a very different faith tradition from my own. She is the author of five novels, as well as several other works of nonfiction, including her latest book with the provocative title, People Love Dead Jews, which has a companion podcast called Adventures with Dead Jews. She has a PhD in comparative literature in Hebrew and Yiddish, and it gives me great pleasure to launch into this exploration of Jane Austen and why she matters now more than ever by welcoming Dara Horn. Welcome, Dara. It's so great to have you on. Thanks so much for having me. So, Dara, tell me about the first time that you read 
Pride and Prejudice? The first time I read it was on my own, not in school. I, I had a sort of phase in my teens where I was trying to fill in all the parts of my literary education that weren't happening in school. And so, you know, in school, we'd read Macbeth. And then I'm like, well, we're not reading Hamlet. And I would read it at home. That's how big a nerd I am. So I was reading it. I do remember reading it on my own as a teenager, but like while we were in high school and in school, we were reading, you know, something else like Jane Eyre. And I thought like, oh, this one's not on the list. I should read this now. So you really are a nerd. Yay. You. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yay oh, yeah. You. Yeah. 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 I, I have a Ph.D. to prove it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. My Ph.D. is in comparative literature, but, um, you know, within comparative literature, you specialize in different languages. And my languages for my scholarly work are in Hebrew and Yiddish. So I actually now feel like very out of my depth when I read English literature because there's just so many things when I'm, and especially now revisiting it as an adult, because, you know, when you're reading something as a teenager, when things don't make sense, you just figure, oh, you know what, I'm older, it'll make sense. Now I'm rereading this. I have so many just sort of cultural questions about it. Like, you know, why does no one in this book have a job? Why do most people in this book not have a first name? Why do all these houses have names? You know, there's all this sort of like cultural information that, you know, I feel like I just don't have. And, you know, maybe if I had majored in English instead of comparative literature and, and you know, Hebrew and Yiddish, somebody would have explained that to me. But like right now, I'm like, there probably are people in this world who don't have houses with names, but I guess they're not <laughs> characters in this book. No, those are great questions. And that's really what I wanted to ask you is about that experience of returning to this novel that you read so long ago as a young woman. And now just sort of on a visceral sort of personal level, what was it like to reread it? It's not my first time rereading it because about a year or two ago, my one of my children and my daughter and I were in a like a mother-daughter book group. And this was one of the books that we read in that group. My daughter really hated it. In that reading, it was a little hard for me to separate sort of what Jane Austen is doing here, which is very original in its time, and this like vast industry that mm. she inspired, right? Which, you know, is now, I mean, you know, maybe less in 2021 than in 1995, but books like this are kind of, or this really this book in particular, I think is sort of the founder of a lot of, you know, this sort of romantic comedy genre yes. of yes. like literature and movies. And it is almost like an industry, most of which like includes a lot of the romantic hijinks, but leaves out the insight. I think a lot of sophisticated readers who don't find that kind of work appealing to go back to this, it's sort of like it's, you have to kind of get through and, and jump over that whole industry that has sort of propped up around it. So I found it frustrating the second time I read it. So then reading it for today, though, I was thinking about it a little differently. And I was thinking about it, about how constrained this life mm. they're living is, mm. was something that I found really striking and how the characters in it are sort of, in a sense, doing some kind of damage control mm. where they're trying to sort of, you know, live humane lives within these constraints. You know, I found that a little bit a little bit sad, actually, in a way that maybe wasn't, in, I don't know if it was intended or not. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things to explore in your comments. I mean, the whole surrounding of fan culture, which exploded even more with Harry Potter, but that's that you're right, that is very hard to get beyond. I've actually found in teaching, not only with Jane Austen, but other works, that when I, I get students who love this author or this work of literature and they want to write papers and do research and do theses on them, It I often realize over time that their love is for these other media versions. Oh, interesting. And they don't even really know the story. So they have this memes interpretation of the story 
that isn't even in the story. And it's just interesting to have to kind of peel back those layers and get them back to the text, to the foundation, ad fontes, as we say in classical and biblical scholarship. And so a lot of times readers don't even know the difference between, you know, these social media and film adaptation distortions. And they can be fine works of art in themselves, but they still aren't the same work of art. But the cultural question, I, that I'd really love to dig in on that with you, especially because your expertise is in literature of a very different culture and time. And so I can imagine it is sort of a culture shock. We all know that the so-called great books and the classical canon is being questioned all the time and interrogated and because of, of the issues that we're grappling with today. And so some people will look at this novel and just say, you know, this is a novel about you know, a very small population of wealthy white people in England and has nothing to offer anyone outside of that. So despite the differences, do you see any sort of transcendent truths in the novel about the human condition, about human relations, and anything like that? Or was it hard to get beyond the cultural veneer? The transcendent question, maybe I'm, I'm not going to answer just yet. But what did strike me in reading this now was it did remind me of one of the books from sort of you know more my area of expertise, which fortunately is one of the only Yiddish works that's known to a non-Jewish audience. Um, the Tevi of the Dairyman stories, because they were adapted for Broadway and Fiddler on the Roof. The adaptation Broadway is right up there with the Reese Witherspoon and, you know, and, and whatever, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, you know, really not that similar to the original book, but the Yiddish writer Shalom Aleichem wrote this series of stories. They're written over about 20 years between about 1890 and 1910. And they're about, uh, this man, Tevya, who lives in rural Ukraine, uh, living in extreme poverty, and he has seven daughters. And the story is about his daughter's marriages and him trying, basically trying to marry off these daughters in this sort of traditional world and how they rebel against that and they make their own decisions. And <laughs> each one of those decisions, it's sort of set up as a kind of one of the ways that this traditional culture is confronting modernity. Um, one daughter marries a communist, one daughter, you know, so there, there's different like sort of challenges to the Jewish community that are told through each of these daughters' stories. The reason I thought of it in reading this was because it's a sort of, you know, it's similar in that it's this family with all these daughters and how, you know, the family with all the daughters presents this economic problem, you know, so like that felt familiar. Also that there was all these pressures on these daughters to marry certain types of people for reasons that really were just economic. I mean, that felt very familiar. So, you know, I was thinking about that and I was also thinking about where these people have freedom and where they don't. What's very different, of course, in the Yiddish context is that all of these challenges that are faced to the Jewish community are part of this like oppressive anti-Semitic regime, right? One example is the story of the daughter named Chava. It's a big part of Fiddler on the Roof where she marries this non-Jewish man. And in the adaptation for Fiddler on the Roof, they made that more about like, oh, you know, she's choosing to marry outside of the faith or something like that. What that actually is in the books is there was an anti-Semitic policy on the part of the czarist regime where there, they had something called the one-third policy for Jews in uh, the Russian Empire, where they were going to kill one-third of them, convert one-third of them, and force one-third of them to emigrate. So the converting one-third of them, one way they did it was by seducing Jewish women. So, I mean, so that was like, you know, that is not like, a, oh, she chooses to marry this man outside her faith. That's not what was going on in the book. And so to sort of peel back and explain all that, there isn't that kind of like outer oppressive layer going on here where there's this like accepted maybe in maybe in terms of gender. But it was something I was thinking about a lot because I was thinking about, you know, the role of the parents and how the daughters are sort of trapped in this world where the parents are really the people in charge in some ways, but the parents seem to be 
the least knowledgeable about what's happening. That that felt very familiar. I mean, it feels familiar from life, too, of course. So this whole series is based on the assumption and the fact that Jane Austen is a Christian novelist and her novels reflect her Christian worldview. But Dara, you study and write Jewish literature. What are some major ways that Jewish literature, especially Jewish stories, are different from the worldview that we might find in Christian writers like Jane Austen? Yeah. No, well, so this is actually, I have this in my my forthcoming book, which I, you know, probably is, you know, is really off brand for this. My forthcoming book is called People Love Dead Jews. So yeah, it's really not in the spirit of Jane Austen. <laughs> and it's a nonfiction book, People Love Dead Jews, sadly. I have a whole chapter in that book about called Fictional Dead Jews. And it's about how a reader once wrote to me about one of my novels. One of the main characters in the novel is a survivor of a Russian Empire pogrom. And this reader wrote me something like, you know, I was reading your book and I got to the part where, you know, the horse was being beaten and I threw the book across the room because, you know, I feel like the purpose of literature should be for us to laugh and enjoy and be uplifted. That's more of a service to mankind. And then I like I wrote back to this person. I did not send my message, but I wrote to her. Sorry about the scene with the horse. It was actually a reference to Crime and Punishment, which is another book you might want to avoid. You also probably want to steer clear of the Bible, which is not a book for people who like to laugh and enjoy. But what I realized was that there's this expectation of uplift in literature. And in my long slog through comparative literature graduate school in my PhD work, um, you know, you read like sort of the history of literary criticism. And there's a 20th century critic, Frank Kermode, who has a book called The Sense of an Ending. And he traces back the sort of the, the desire readers have for narrative coherence to the history of Western religion, right? And he has this idea that, you know, basically what we look for in stories is coherence, right? We want things to make sense. And in a sense, that's similar to sort of a lot of traditional religious belief in that you know, we think that everything has a purpose and, you know, everything, you know, all these random things that happen in our lives actually are part of this grand design. Well, in a book, they are part of a grand design, right? They're part of the author's grand design. And so he says it's that urge for coherence that is what we're looking for as readers. And I'm like, OK, I'm on board with that. And then he gives this example and he says this all comes from religion. And he says the Bible is a great example of this kind of narrative arc. You know, it begins at the beginning with the words in the beginning and it ends with a vision of the end, with the words, even so, come Lord Jesus. And I'm like, well, that's not how I thought the Bible ended. And if you think about the Hebrew Bible, you know, if you ever read through the book of Chronicles, you know, doesn't really end with a bang. And I realized, like, when he's talking about, oh, this comes from, you know, this need for this narrative arc and this happy ending, it comes from religion. I'm a religious person, and this is not familiar to me. And then I'm like, he's not talking about religion. He's talking about Christianity. And then I sort of started to realize how much of what we think of as the basics of narrative and storytelling and fiction actually originate from Christian belief. So, I mean, think about it this way, like think about what we expect of a story, right? We want the good guys to be saved, right? If that doesn't happen, you know, the main character should have some kind of epiphany, you know, and if that doesn't happen, there should be like, you know, a moment of grace. These are all like really Christian terms. It's not just that they're Christian terms. 
these are things that they're really understood completely differently in the Jewish tradition. You know, in this idea of there being this sort of happy ending to history, if that happy ending to history is, is coming in Judaism, it hasn't happened yet. That sort of idea that like we're entitled to a happy ending is something that's not present. And then what I realized is this idea that, oh, stories need to have this ending. I started realizing that everything I was reading in Hebrew and Yiddish literature they didn't have endings. All the sort of canonical works of Hebrew and Yiddish literature, first of all, there's never a happy ending. And second of all, sometimes there's no ending at all. Like the story stops. Nachman of Bratzlav, who's this, uh, he's this Hasidic writer, late 1700s, early 1800s. He writes these sort of very mystical stories. He was inspired by the Brothers Grimm. He read the Brothers Grimm and, you know, he was inspired in sort of imposing that onto his religious philosophy. And he writes these stories that are like the Brothers Grimm, except that they don't have endings. Like there'll be this lost princess and she's hidden away in a castle and the knight has to go and find her. And at the end, he literally just says, well, the knight hasn't found her yet. And that's how the story ends. And you're like, wait, what happened? And what happened was he was making a religious point about living in an unredeemed world. That it was, it was absolutely deliberate. It's saying we live in an unredeemed world and the lost princess is a metaphor for the presence of God, et cetera. I mean, there's a whole religious philosophy built into it. I started just looking through even modern writers, you know, like the example I gave of Tavia. That story doesn't end. You know, there's not an ending. It's not like, oh, he is expelled from his home and then he settles in New York. Like, that's not what happens. He's on the road. And actually, every aspect of that story takes place on the road. He meets Shoal Balecham. They're on a train together, sitting in a wagon. They're meeting on the side of the road. All of those, there's so many Yiddish stories that are about sitting on the side of the road. That's really fascinating. I wanted to ask you about what you think the moral or purpose of a novel is. I mean, any novels, whether it's yours or Austin's or, you know, just novels in general, or how novels can impart, rightly or wrongly, teachings about virtue. The moral ethicist Alistair McIntyre says that Jane Austen is one of the last virtue ethicists of the modern age of modernity because she was writing about virtue on the assumption that there are shared understandings of what constitutes virtue, what constitutes right and wrong uh, before we moved into sort of the complete um, subjectivism. Do you even think that novels have or should have a moral purpose? Austin certainly did. Well, so this is a dangerous question for me because I wrote a dissertation on moral structures of plot. Um, so, gosh. Perfect. Um, no, I yeah, I get to defend my dissertation, which, you know, was like a long time ago and I don't really remember it that well. One problem with that question and not your question in particular, but the question is like when people start talking about ethics or morals and fiction, I think a lot of people's brains go to like didactic, mm -hmm, right? Like, right, you know, like right. this, like, and the moral of the story is, you know, <laughs> right. like this kind of thing. You should always be honest about your feelings. You know, okay. You could have had an equally interesting story that taught you the opposite. This is just not what it's about. And honestly, like, it frustrates me too when people talk that way about Hebrew Bible, you would probably say scripture, not about the parts of the Hebrew Bible that are commandments, right. but like the parts that are narrative. When people say like, oh, we read these stories and it teaches us what kind of people to be. I'm like, have you read the Bible? <laughs> because I don't think that's why these stories are there, you know. But yeah, it isn't about sort of this moral of the story that you're supposed to like come away from the story with some kind of teaching, but that there is a moral in the story. 
And what I mean by that is that belief is structural to the plot of fiction. That sounds like a very daring statement. It actually isn't. I'm going to walk you through this and, and you're going to stop me when I get when I get boring. Or, in, you know, like my no, dissertation this is, committee or this something. Is right. this, okay. is, this is my language. Please keep okay. going. So, so, okay. So Ian Forster has the British, you know, uh, early 20th century British novelist. Uh, Ian Forster has a book called Aspects of the Novel, which, you know, a person like me reads and like, ooh, this is going to teach me how to write a novel. Yeah, no. He has a part of that where he talks about what constitutes a plot in a work of fiction. And he has this simple example or seemingly simple example where he says the sentence, the king died, then the queen died, doesn't have a plot. It's a sequence of events. But the sentence, the king died, then the queen died of grief, has a plot. And he says it's because there's now a causative connection between those two events. One event caused the other. I read that. I'm like, okay, that's, you know, when at first glance, that seems reasonable. It's not. What the heck does it mean to die of grief? Is there a clearly articulated suicide note here? No. Is there a coroner's report that says this person died of grief? No. What I realized is it's not that there's a causative connection between two events. It's that it's the beliefs of the storyteller that lead her to impose a causative connection between two events. In other words, you couldn't say the king died, then the queen died of grief, unless you believed, at least while you're while you're telling the story, that one person could mean so much to the other that she couldn't live without him. That is the belief that is animating that story. And all stories in this sense are animated by belief because otherwise there would be no meaning to the sequence of events. And it's not about the quality of the story, right? It's about any story that I structure. If it's about a thing that happened to me, you know, a fight I had with a friend, the way I'm choosing to tell that story to you, which might be different from the way my friend told it, is itself reflecting certain beliefs. And it's true even in maybe not so artistically constructed stories. Like if you think like of a, a very formulaic action movie, for example. There is something that happens at the beginning of that action movie where you are made to sympathize with a person that you might not normally sympathize with, right? So if you think of like maybe like an art heist film or something like that's told from the point of view of the thief. Now, I would hope most of us going to the movies are not like in favor of art heists, right? But when you're watching the movie, there is some belief that is presented with this character like, oh, you know, he's a maverick. He's so much smarter than the cops. Go, so, you know, he's the one who's striking out on his own and that, oh, he's striking out on his own. He's a maverick. He's creative, whatever it is. That's the value that animates the rest of the story. Right. And so that doesn't mean you come out of that movie and you're like, you know, I'm going to go pull off a heist at the museum. No, but it means that maybe you think differently about what it means to be that kind of maverick person who's going against a conventional system. My point is simply that you can't write a story without beliefs. Belief at a very, you know, at that very basic level of, you know, one person could mean so much to the other that she couldn't live without him. This is brilliant. And Jane Austen really exemplifies this not only in terms of the plot, which that example from Forster is great and your analysis of it, as I said, is brilliant. But even in her narrative style, in using free and direct discourse, where she slips in and out of different characters' perspectives 
to sort of reflect their beliefs about how things should go or just even all of the the gossip that fills the story. I mean, everything, almost everything that happens in the novel happens because of characters repeating stories and giving their interpretations of, of what happened and why it happened and so forth. Using that Forrester example, can you think of something in Pride and Prejudice that reveals that same kind of belief the way you're using it here at work? Yes. I think that you see it from the beginning that the way these sisters are presented, you're definitely siding with certain sisters, right? <laughs> I mean, there's no ambiguity here. Like, I I, I forget where I saw the, there was somewhere on the line where somebody was doing this, like, you know, oh, which Pride and Prejudice, which Bennett sister are you? <laughs> the problem is like, you don't want to be any of them except for the top two, right? Because <laughs> right. the other ones are idiots. I mean, except it's funny because I had that in mind also as I read this book and I'm like, oh, poor Mary. I understand you, Mary. I'm like, you're actually the coolest person in this book and you get the least time. I'm like, you're the only non-boy crazy person in this book. Kudos to you, Mary. You're unconventional and you're you see the ridiculous oppressiveness of the way people are looking at young women and you are not buying into it. I'm like, Mary, good for you. Unfortunately, Jane Austen apparently doesn't see it that way because (laughs) (laughs) that's not where she's where she's going. It's super clear. You don't want to be like Kitty and Lydia. You know, you want to be like Jane and Elizabeth. And, you know, that scene where Elizabeth, she walks to Netherfield because, you know, the older sister is sick and she like walks three miles, even though, you know, and then she kind of comes in there and she's all muddy from this walk and everyone's like, you walked here alone. Watch my pearls. You're clearly supposed to be on the side of this person whose values are in the right place because she cares more about her sister who is important to her as, you know, and their friendship is so imp- and relationship is so important that that matters more to her than her family's reputation. And oh no, she's walking alone in the mud as a young woman hers, right? So I think it's on every page of the book, even though it's this constrained world, you're clearly as a reader being set up to sort of be on the side of the character who is, by our standards, not really bucking convention, but within the world of the book is pushing against it. Right, right. If you were recommending or not recommending Pride and Prejudice to, you know, maybe a young adult or adult reader for the first time who was reading it for the first time, what would you tell them to look for or to try to take away from it? Or or would you even recommend it at all? Well, I mean, it would depend on the reader, right? I mean, you know, like my daughter wasn't into it, right? And, you know, and perhaps that shows like sort of how far away we are from that world where, you know, people's choices aren't really their own, right? In some ways. To me, one thing that was sort of interesting about it was there's there's this optimism in the book. And as I was reading it, I wasn't sure if this was because of, as I said, this sort of industry that has evolved of, of fandom around this kind of work. <laughs> You're reading this book like, you know, everything's going to turn out just fine. They're not going to like end up homeless, kicked out of their entailed home. And they're all old maids or whatever is considered the big tragedy that they're terrified of. Charlotte Bronte will do that. But right. she's but Jane Austen's not doing that, right? Like you can see that. You know, there's a kind of, you know, maybe an anger in Bronte's work that isn't here. And there's that something like kind of interesting about that optimism and also the consistency of the characters in the book that, you know, it's supposed to be about, oh, there's this big change where Elizabeth realizes she was wrong. You already see her from the beginning as an open-minded person, right? That's already there. That's very clearly telegraphed, right? Like she's contrast, you know, with her mother. And I was reminded in that sense also of Tevye the Dairyman story. Tevye, the, the father, he doesn't change. 
and there is no character development in him. And that and it's not it's not a flaw. It's a strength because his superpower is that he continues enduring. And to bring it back to this question of faith, his faith continues enduring. So what I thought was really interesting looking at Elizabeth Bennett is that even when she sees that she's been wrong about Mr. Darcy or, you know, these various things that, you know, Mr. Wickover or these other, all these characters, her willingness to sort of change her mind is part of her character, which is consistent, right? It's not like she undergoes this, like, you know, big moment of epiphany where everything changes. Like, yes, she goes through, there's a, there's a reveal, there are plot reveals, but they're about other people. They're not about her. And she stays consistent. In the book, that sort of is enacted by this sort of happy ending. There's a, a wedding and everybody's happy at the end of the book. You know, Tevi the Dairy Man, very different situation. That story ends with him. The daughter kills herself. The other the son-in-law dies. The wife dies and he's expelled from his home. Awesome. But what's interesting is the very last line of the Tevi stories is, Shalom Aleichem, tell all of our Jews everywhere, don't worry because our old God still lives. Hmm. Wow. And wow. it's sort of the story is that like, it's about his ability to be resilient and endure, right? And it's a story of endurance and resilience. And I did see a little bit of that in the sort of inherent optimism in this book. Yeah. And I mean, and Pride and Prejudice ultimately is a comedy. Yeah. And so all ends well, including the understanding of faith that underlies the entire world. Well, this was just so enriching and enlightening. And I'm so thankful, Dara, for you contributing your observations. And you've given me a lot to think about that I'm going to think about when I read novels now and, and think about the belief that's inherent in those plots. Thanks for being the, the pioneer here for our first one. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing the rest of the series. Thanks so much for having me. This podcast is called Jane and Jesus because I'm a Christian who finds an abundance of scriptural wisdom in the novels of Jane Austen. But what makes great literature so great is that it transcends time, place, and belief and speaks to the human condition as it exists in perpetuity. Cultures, beliefs, and values differ among us, of course. Some of us expect resolution in our stories, and for some of us, lack of resolution is the point. But even so, the overarching meta-narrative of what it means to be human remains the same. That's why the anxieties faced by the Anglican Bennett family in 19th century England are not all that different from those experienced by Tevye the Dairyman's Jewish family living in the Ukraine 100 years later. Even when the stories change, or when they challenge us, whether they are the stories of fictional writers or those found in the Holy Bible, how we read them can change how we live. Jane and Jesus is a Soul Shop original, hosted by me, Karen Swallow Pryor. Our producer is Josh Cross, and our editor is Robert Scaramuccia. For more Jane and Jesus content, subscribe to our newsletter at janeandjesus.substack.com and follow us on Twitter at Jane and Jesus. Please leave us a rating and review and share it with your friends and family.